Welcome to Business Beyond Usual, everyone. We are so excited to host the episode. My name is Christina Weiberg. I'm here alongside Eric Hoffenbeck, my co-executive producer this year. Today, we have two very special guests to BBU, and we're going to take a high-level look at the MBA ecosystem, what it's like building MBA platforms, communities, and also the impact of these forums within the MBA space. Of course, this is the Michigan Ross MBA podcast. So we are also excited to announce that we were named Poet and Quants Program of the Year in 2021. And as such, we have Sujin, who is the lead of our admissions program here at Ross, and also John Byrne, who is founder of Poets and Quants to join us today. Before we get started, we'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at bbupodcast at umich.edu. Umich is U-M-I-C-H dot E-D-U. Ask us questions, suggest episode topics, or just say hi. We'll spend some time at the beginning of each show reading some of your messages and answering any questions you may have. We love hearing from our listeners, so be sure to reach out. So as Christina said, it's so exciting to be here. And now it's time to introduce our esteemed guest. We're delighted to welcome two MBA celebrities to the pod, likely very well known to our prospective students. First, a familiar face to BBU, the warm and friendly leader of Michigan Ross, the full-time MBA program, known to prospective and current students alike, the managing director for the full-time MBA admissions and student experience, Sujin Kwan, who also happens to be a great golf scramble teammate. How are you? Welcome, Sujin. I'm doing great, Eric, and right back at you. You were a great teammate. <laughs> great times in the early days of the outdoor activities last fall, I guess That's fall right. of 2020. Also, we are so delighted to welcome John Byrne. John is the founder of Sea Change Media, a global digital media company of higher education content. Sea Change now has five websites, including poetsandquants.com, the subject of today's episode, the highly popular destination for applicants to the world's best business schools. Byrne is also the author or co-author of more than 10 books, including two New York Times bestsellers, and is the former executive editor of Business Week, editor-in-chief of businessweek.com, and editor-in-chief of Fast Company. John, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. And it's such fun to be here with a superstar like Sujin. Oh, likewise, John. <laughs> Amazing. So with that, we're going to start with a general background and introduction on both John and Sujin and how they came to become the leaders they are in our MBA communities and industry leaders as well. So let's kick it off with John. You were deeply involved in business school rankings. Can you share more about why you decided to start Poets and Quants and how you grew it into the well-known platform it is today? Sure. I was coming to the end of my time as executive editor of Business Week magazine. And Business Week had just been acquired by Bloomberg. And I decided to go off and do my own entrepreneurial venture. Poets and Quants was the first website I launched. It was a natural to me because I was very familiar with the space. In 1988, I have the dubious distinction of launching the first regularly published ranking of full-time MBA programs in the world. That was at Business Week, and it did create quite a stir, and I did a lot of coverage of MBAs and graduate management education back then, including uh, the writing of several books on the topic. But then I kind of, you know, went off and did other things. But as I was thinking about launching my own company and thinking about what people really needed, Poets and Quants just became a natural. Because, you know, one thing you find out in journalism is that journalists write what they want to write, not necessarily what an audience needs. And I really thought that we could fulfill a gap, a vacuum in the marketplace by really providing 
very detailed information to help people make informed decisions about where to get their MBA. And that was sort of the genesis of Poetic Wants 11 years ago. We've been very successful, luckily. I will knock on wood, glass, and everything else that I can reach. We had our most successful year in terms of revenue and profit last year. We're a company uh, with billions of over 5 million a year. We have 17 full-time employees. We have the largest single audience of MBA applicants in the world. And when we say MBA applicants, we mean the best and the brightest applicants to the best schools. That is their target demographic. That's incredible. And I feel like as an MBA student, all we hear is think about what the customer is missing. <laughs> this is literally the case study of how to think about business in terms of what the customer is missing and fill that gap. Thank you so much for sharing more. Um, we're going to jump over to Sujin. You've been at Michigan Ross for more than 17 years now, leading the school through ups and downs, a pandemic, everything in between. How do you see your role in building a successful MBA program and community? Well, I'd say the first ingredient, if you will, is the people. And it's about attracting, selecting, and recruiting students who fit our community and our values. Values like collaboration, positive impact, being engaged, taking initiative. And then it's about creating and ensuring a student experience that students and graduates will love while they're here and value throughout their careers. How do we do this? It's by understanding students' interests and goals and their needs and working with faculty and staff to create experiences and classes that align with students' interests and goals. And by doing what we can to foster a sense of community from the time they're admitted through graduation. Amazing. And that is, honestly, at times feels like a lifelong process. <laughs> it's also a lifelong community in terms of we love sharing that at Michigan. We have alumni around the world that we love to say go blue in the airports, in random towns when you see each other. But it, the MBA application process itself can sometimes truly feel like a lifetime of work and accomplishment, honestly. Eric, what do you have to share with us? Yeah, well, and I'm just reflecting back to my application process and thinking, well, number one, watching the videos at Michigan Ross and hearing your great advice, Sujin, of how to structure an application and prepare for the interview. And then, of course, reading content up and down Poets and Quants to understand where do I fit as sort of a nonprofit, non-traditional applicant compared to peers who have been in the corporate space. But I also want to rewind just a little bit for both John and Sujin. I'm curious, and this is going a little off script, is when did you meet? Uh, when did you first become colleagues? Because it seems like you've developed a really amazing working relationship so far. Gosh, I can't remember. <laughs> Jinx. It feels like, like a really long time. time. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> wow, like a really long time. Also, I've known the school since uh, none of you except for Sue Jin will probably remember this. When Gil Whitaker was dean, I mean, that's when I first visited the school. My God, I don't even know how many years that it had to be. That had to be over a quarter of a century ago. That was before my time. <laughs> I mean, well, I've known the school through all different leaders and have been out to Ross many times. And one, one of the really fun things that we've done in more recent years is something we call the MBA Summit, which actually was initiated by Michigan. And that's held every year where Sue Jin and a couple of other admission directors from top schools are on a panel along with sometimes alumni, sometimes employers. And we give a full picture of sort of the MBA experience and what schools are looking for and what an MBA can do for you. And it's always up to date because it's every year. And it, that's been a fantastic opportunity to get the new Sue Jin banner. 
It's always been a fun conversation. It doesn't feel like an interview. It feels more like colleagues getting together and catching up. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing I will say, and you mentioned this, Eric, the videos that Sujin does. Sujin has run one of the most transparent, most helpful, most supportive admissions offices of any business school in the world. And all you have to do is read the blog, look at the videos, and you see how accessible and how easy and open Sujin has made admissions at Michigan Ross. And as everyone knows, applying to an elite world-class business school is a daunting experience. It's a marathon. It's filled with a lot of anxious and jittery people. So the more transparent and the more helpful an admissions team can be to applicants, it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. I mean, I've been through it myself. I've been through it with my kids. Like I know what the process is like. And so to take out as much anxiety as we can, I think hopefully it's helpful to candidates. I would say very much so. And I'm seeing Christina nod along as well, at least clearing up some of what can be perceived as the black box of uncertainty has been really helpful. We have more coming from the conversation with Sujin Kwan and John Byrne in a moment. But first, let's take a message from our sponsor. Business Beyond Usual is sponsored by Open Road at Ross. Open Road is an action-based social entrepreneurship program developed by Ross students and powered by Business Plus Impact and the Ford Motor Company. The aim of the program is to give small business owners extra hands in solving complex challenges and to help students gain real experience understanding the various issues social ventures face. Over the course of four weeks, students drive from state to state, meeting socially and environmentally driven entrepreneurs. They spend one week on site in each location, working closely with the entrepreneur to provide a solution or recommendation to a business problem they are facing. At the end of each week, students pack up in the car and hit the road again to meet with the next entrepreneur. And after two years of pause due to the global pandemic, Open Road is back for 2022. Thanks to Open Road at Ross for sponsoring today's episode. Now, let's shift the conversation to some exciting news that Christina mentioned at the end of 2021. Poets and Quants named Michigan Ross the 2021 Program of the Year, which I know all of us as students feel validated by our choice to be at this institution. But John, we'd love to hear a little bit more about how this was decided and any insight on some of the methodology that you use for the Program of the Year determination. Sure. We actually get our editorial staff together and, you know, we're in the weeds, right? We're covering this, I'll call it an industry. It's, it's not really an industry, but it is in some level because it is highly competitive and there are a lot of really great world-class players in it and they work very hard to be the best that they can be. So we cover every little movement of this business of business education that is imaginable. So we get together an editorial team and we say, well, you know, who's done the best job out there? Who has the best MBA program? And again and again, we were thinking about how innovative Michigan Ross has been. It's a rare month when something new isn't happening at Ross. It could be a new student managed fund. It's just one thing after another. And and in fact, Ross has the most student managed funds of any business school in the world. And of course, Ross has long been a leader in experiential education. Those student managed funds are part of that, but so is MAP, of course, and even beyond MAP and what the school has done there. It's just one thing after another, from the business and tech initiative to the health care accelerator that's been launched to, you know, the new founders program. It's just one thing after another. The pace of innovation is dizzying, and we really could not think 
of another MBA program in the world that is as innovative and as evolving as the Michigan Ross program, which really sealed the deal for us. John, you're right. It is dizzying. The admissions team brings in a different speaker from among our staff, colleagues, or faculty to talk about what's new in their areas every week, just so we can stay on top of what's happening at the school and how can we share the wealth of resources with candidates out there. So we are constantly educating ourselves on what's going on here. Yeah. And it's like Michigan Climate Venture. Okay. That's Mm -hmm. a program at the intersection of climate technology and venture capital. That's new. The new student-led investment fund for early stage companies and environmental solutions and sustainability. It's just amazing how many new and newfangled things Michigan has come up with above and beyond, you know, its core differentiation in the marketplace where no one does experiential learning in depth the way Michigan Ross does, actually disrupting the academic calendar and putting everyone into really challenging and compelling assignments with companies and organizations for every single MBA and has long made it required. You know, there are still schools out there that still don't have a required experiential experience. So that's a big deal. And I think, you know, that's best practice in the industry, the experiential learning opportunities at Michigan Ross. John, we have a spot open on our team. You are hired. (laughs) You never knew you were going to get another job on this podcast. (laughs) I'm really flattered. You're required. (laughs) Yeah. One, I mean, you hit on so many great points there, and I totally agree about MAP. Christina and I did MAP last year. I worked with Morning Brew, the digital newsletter that was started by a couple of Michigan grads. Christina, what was your MAP project that you endeavored on? Yeah, I got the honor to work with Serenop, which is a nonprofit based in Peru. They're actually the organization that runs the national forestry. And so we were responsible for creating business templates to find innovative funding ideas in the midst of the pandemic since everyone was struggling at that time. And so it was fun to both be able to use my background as a Colombiana with Spanish and also give back to the community with such an incredible organization and a great school like Ross. It was fun. And it's worth noting, you know, I'd say in the last five years, experiential learning has really come of age in business education, but Ross is now celebrating the 30th anniversary of its experiential program, which is just unheard of. I mean, there are schools, like I mentioned before, that have only recently put in a requirement for its MBA grads to have an experiential learning opportunity, and there are still schools that don't have one. So that speaks really loud. Definitely. And I mean, well ahead of its time. And I'd say we're both grateful to have that experience that we got last year. And the first years just found out their projects last week for the upcoming map. And let me just say, for every single person in the MBA firm, this is a logistical nightmare. And why most schools don't do it this way is because they can't. As you know, Ross has more than 35 faculty members who advise the student teams I think last year there were almost 70 MAP projects around the world. Lining up those projects, getting students ready to prepare for them and perform in them and getting the buy-in from these organizations to get really exciting projects, that's a hell of a lot of work. And most schools couldn't do it and can't do it. We've invested a lot of time and resources and thought into creating 
not just the MAP project experience itself, but the build up to MAP, the big MAP reveal last week, students got to open these surprise boxes to find out who's on their team, what their projects are. And it's quite celebratory because it is a big part of their experience. So it was nice to get 400 students back together, which you don't see very often during a pandemic. So it was really quite electric. Absolutely. Well, and also, I mean, to John's point about new things happening seemingly each month, last year, the Sanger Leadership Center debuted and piloted a program of leading inclusive teams to better help students learn how to lead with diverse teams, which is a huge part of the business school experience. And I know that program is again happening for the first years this year. And I learned a ton from it. So all the innovation that Sujin and her team hears about weekly, then that trickles down to us students, some of us who are student ambassadors to then be able to be up to speed for our conversations with prospective students. John, I want to ask you a little bit about the rankings that Poets and Quants puts together and how you pull those all together on the website. How do your rankings and your ranking systems compare to other systems such as, you know, of course, the U.S. News and World Report, The Economist, which I know was controversial sometimes during the (laughs) pandemic because they included some and didn't include some programs. So how do your rankings compare? First off, you know, I mean, it's important to note that there is a love-hate relationship with rankings. I take the view, having invented the first one, that they're helpful to people. That, you know, you you might read them for the entertainment value they provide, which would be better to do than the informational value oftentimes. But what rankings do for a person in the early part of the journey to business school is give them a sense of the landscape. What are the possibilities? What are the different programs that they might look into and consider to apply to? And so that's a very useful purpose. The other thing about rankings, I will say, is that, you know, while an individual number, you're ranked five or 10 or 15 or 20, to me, it's less important than the unleashing of all the data that's standardized across the program so that it gives you a wealth of information to use, to compare, to contrast, to make smart decisions about where to go, where to apply, whether or not to accept an offer. And that's helpful. And the other thing is, I will say this, a lot of people don't agree with me, but I will say one reason why the MBA is the most popular graduate degree in the United States is because of rankings. Now think of this, what other school, what other degree gets the attention, the mind share of business school rankings? None. You know, you have U.S. news and they'll rank everything that moves and everything that doesn't move. But other than that, there aren't The Economist, The Financial Times, U.S. News, Business Week, and Forbes ranking med schools, law schools, agricultural schools, computer science schools. Those are five of the greatest brands in business media, regularly publishing rankings of MBA programs. What those rankings do, regardless of what they say, is they remind everyone of how important graduate management education is. And that's a valuable, valuable thing for the business. And I think it's one of the reasons why the MBA has long become the most popular graduate degree in America. Now, what do we do? Rather than kill uh, more prey and invent yet another ranking from scratch, I decided that the best thing to do was to create a composite ranking. Take the five most influential rankings. I just named them, but I'll name them again. U.S. News, Business Week, Forbes, The Economist, and The Financial Times, and mash them up together and do it in a way that, in my mind, reflects their true value in the marketplace. Now, 
having created a ranking, I know that there are a lot of anomalies when you deal with data that are unexplained. There are a lot of weird things that happen. So actually putting these things together tends to minimize the anomalies and get you to what I would consider a greater truth. So we weight these different systems by what I consider to be their value. And then we publish the mashup rating. But the more important thing is that in one place, an applicant can see where their schools that they're considering fall within the five most influential rankings that are most consulted in the world. So I think that's really super helpful because you can just go to one place. And the truth is, you know, you go to the U.S. News, they will never tell you about Forbes and Business Week. You go to The Economist, they will never tell you about Financial Times and vice versa, because every ranking organization is so protective of its ranking that they refuse to compare it to others. And it's in the comparisons that are helpful because if a school, by virtue of an anomaly in the statistics, appears to be number three in one, but 12 and 14 and 13 and all the others, you know where the school really is. And I think that seeing where the consensus lies is helpful to applicants compared to where any school might land in any one of these ranking systems. Now, I am one of the chief critics of rankings. We never write a story about a ranking without talking about its flaws, its imperfections, and the weird results that come from them. And all this is for one reason. We want everyone to be thinking about rankings in a more holistic way. It's, it's just one little piece of the puzzle, just like a GMAT score or a GRE score is one piece of a holistic process that admissions uses in business school decisions to either admit, uh, deny, or waitlist a candidate. So, you know, you should take all this stuff with a big grain of salt, look at them, see what they say, look at the data that underlines the rankings that could be more helpful to you in terms of employment rates, in terms of starting compensation, or in terms of what it takes to get in, in terms of a GPA, an average GMAT or a GRE, what the acceptance rates are whether a school is getting more applications or, or less and what that may mean for the school's momentum. Well, all these things are kind of helpful to know. I mean, they're so helpful to know. And I think for me, when I was thinking about applying, I looked at all of the rankings simply because I didn't know which one was the best. So I was like, what's this say? What's this say? And when they're all different, it can be so confusing as a student to know. And luckily, I had the privilege of choosing what program fit best for me, not necessarily just on the rankings. I'm very thankful that Ross is ranked on top as well as is a place that I love. But for a lot of students, they might, in particular, maybe international students, they might be solely looking at the rankings. And so having that background and having that ability and that transparency, like you mentioned, to understand why things are the way they are is key. Transitioning back to Susan a little bit, when we think about rankings, <laughs> there's always a conversation, at least there were, with my group of prospective students, oh, the rankings changed. What do you think they think about this? How is it going to affect the application process? So can you shed a little light for us on how Ross thinks about these various rankings? So rankings are just one of the many ways that we monitor our brand strength. But many of the things that makes Ross great, like the breadth and depth of our action-based learning offerings, our diverse and collaborative community, our supportive and accessible alums, and the friendliness and quality of life in Ann Arbor, these are things that students have told us they value and that it impacts their experience, but they aren't measured by existing rankings. And so as candidates look at these rankings, they should really understand what each one is measuring because there are five, six, seven for a reason. They all measure very different things and they differentiate themselves by saying, we measure these things. And so 
the things that align with what's important to you are the criteria that you should look at. But too often, I think candidates look at the number, what rank is a school, and that doesn't tell a complete story. The savvy applicant will look at not only what's in the ranking, but assess what matters to me and then rank schools according to their own priorities. That's really true. And, you know, one of the things that we do that I think is really helpful for applicants is we do a series called Meet the Class. And here's where we go to a Michigan Ross and we ask Michigan to, hey, tell us 10 or 12 students that are incoming in the new class that kind of represent what the school is all about. And in one fell swoop, you will get in this one story, what's the newest and the latest stuff that's going on at the school and what kinds of people are they bringing in as students? And you get a full picture of a school, its culture, why people have applied, why they're going there, what they hope to achieve, what their dreams are for their lives. And I think that that is really a much better way to to determine fit than looking at a number on a chart at Forbes or Business Week or U.S. News or Financial Times or The Economist. Absolutely. I mean, for me as an applicant, hearing the stories, reading the facts, not just the rankings, but the facts about how people engage and what the community is like is is vital in making some of those decisions. Thinking about the goals that Ross has for success, how much does public recognition in the form of rankings from websites or publications factor into the goals? You know, previously you were talking about how of, you know, the staff's own volition, you bring in these people who are leading changes so that you can hear. But is it ever the reverse? Is it ever that you hear about a ranking or something else that another business school is doing and you decide to try to pursue the same? While the rankings are something that we monitor, they don't influence our goals. Our goal is to deliver the best student experience possible. And that includes attracting incredible students, fostering diversity and inclusion, offering innovative action-based learning experiences, and other programming that will enable students to achieve their goals. And while we hope these efforts are reflected in the rankings, we don't allow them to influence our program decisions or goals. Which, for me personally, I'm so excited to hear that. You know, we love Ross so much, and I think one of the things that I've personally enjoyed, both on the podcast and speaking to prospective students and also being a student, is the fact that Ross has such a transparent community and culture and communication style. So totally fits with how I feel about the school. <laughs> Eric, what are your thoughts? Completely agree. And the rankings, as you both highlighted so eloquently, is being that one piece of the puzzle, but is often a helpful starting place just to understand what are the options that are out there. And I almost missed Michigan Ross in my application process were it not for looking at the rankings as well and then understanding the culture that lies behind those rankings. So thank you, rankings, for helping me find Michigan Ross. John, I want to ask you a question about perhaps some of the unintended impacts of rankings. And Poets and Quants provides, as you said, it's a platform for the elite. Uh, elite business schools, elite candidates, but it can certainly cause that source of anxiety for applicants. In the comparison game, one of my favorite quotes is comparison is the thief of joy, maybe because I'm an identical twin and that has been my entire life. Uh, (laughs) But I'm curious to hear from you, you know, how does Poets and Quants either combat this anxiety or address some of the competitive aspects that is part of the application process? Yeah, well, obviously, we have a lot of advice on the site. I mean, I would say that hmm, probably at least 20% of our content is nothing but application advice, maybe more than that. And, you know, I, I think what we're hoping to do is make the whole thing more transparent. 
you know, by writing as much as we do about the business of business education and writing about what schools expect and then what happens. And we do, you know, do a fair number of critical stories at times. I think it does remove a lot of the mystery uh, of the process. I don't think you can ever wring out all the anxiety because after all, this is a very big and important decision for people. If you step back and say, you know, what's the most expensive thing you'll ever acquire in your life? After a house, it's an MBA education. <laughs> uh, now, sure, if you have kids, that's going to be pretty expensive too. But in terms of purchasing something, you know, outside of a house, given the opportunity cost involved in going to a great business school for two years and the cost of the program, it's probably more money that you're going to give up and spend than for anything other than your home in a lifetime. So this is a big and important decision. It's a meaningful decision. You know, people talk about MBA education as a transformative experience. It is, it is no exaggeration. It can transform a person and make a very big difference in a person's life. So I understand the anxiety that goes along with it. And I think that by getting more information out there, talking about the differences in these programs, letting you meet people who've uh, succeeded in the race to get into a school, because obviously all the good schools reject the vast majority of their applicants. It helps, I think, to at least, if not relieve the tension entirely or the anxiety, it makes you feel like you're in the same boat with a lot of other people. And a lot of really good, high quality people are getting rejected from these programs because they can only accept a certain number of people. And I'm, I'm sure that Sujin and her colleagues at Ross in the admissions area probably feel, you know, the, the most disappointment over having to turn down really super people. But the, that's the nature of the business and that's the nature of a highly selective MBA program. If I can go off script a little bit again and ask deeper, for me as a Latina in business, going into the future of my career, I realize that I am a very small number. And thinking about what has happened both societally and in the world for the last couple of years, thinking about Black Lives Matter and the shift toward more focus on diversity, there are oftentimes a lot of complaints or a lot of exhaustion around business following culture rather than more businesses taking a step up and making change. Now, You've been in this communications business world for the longest time in the best way possible, which means that you have historical knowledge on what it means to report about these things, think about these things. And I'm personally curious, when you look at the outlook of diversity for business, diversity in MBA programs, do you feel hopeful? Do you feel concerned? What are your thoughts around this conversation that is so important in society and in business? I'd say we are at something of an inflection point. Most schools have already appointed directors of diversity, inclusion, and equity. And many schools that haven't are in the process of recruiting these folks and giving them a big say in uh, leadership decisions at their schools. I think it's become, you know, probably the top priority right now for most business schools in the United States, for sure. There's less of this worldwide, much more attention devoted to it in the United States, because I think in the U.S. we define diversity differently than it might be defined in Europe or Asia. So I'm pretty optimistic because people are really, you know, following up on uh, the words with actions. Time will tell, of course, but I think that the amount of public disclosure, you know, imposes an accountability on the words that often doesn't exist. 
And, you know, if there's anything, you know, we do hold uh, schools' feet to the fire on different things, and I think this is one of them. It's great to see schools, for example, start to produce annual reports on diversity and inclusion, where they include the numbers and they're open about trying to improve whether the, the number of faculty who are underrepresented minorities uh, or the student populations or scholarship aid. And of course, those numbers are really helpful, but what they don't get at is true inclusion because that's a harder thing. And ultimately, inclusion is even more important than maybe just the numbers. Knowing that your views are respected and wanted and that you feel comfortable in a challenging environment are every bit as important as what the numbers actually show in terms of the percentage of underrepresented minorities in the program. One of the things that, you know, in naming Michigan Ross the program of the year that we were really impressed with was the number of women in leadership positions at the various clubs and co-curricular activities that a business school uh, has. I would bet to you that there is no other business school in the world that has as many women in leadership organizations in an MBA program than Michigan Ross right now. That's fantastic. I'm curious, and just sort of like in wrapping this part of our conversation up, and Sujin, I'd love your take as well. Is I mean, inherently, I, I probably sounded earlier like competition is bad, and I, I don't think competition is bad. It's part of what is sort of underlying in our economic system. But I'm curious if there is a change you'd like to see related to this ecosystem of like, obviously, there's always more applicants than can be admitted. There's amazing people with great qualities who can't get into business schools. Is there a change that you'd like to see throughout this episode? We've heard transparency. We've heard diversity, equity, and inclusion continuing to push those efforts forward. But if there is one change you'd like to see, what would your thoughts be? Well, I think it's happening and it's happening at Ross. It's happening at UVA Darden and a number of other schools. And it's basically telling applicants that, look, if you want to take a GMAT or a GRE, that's great. And we'll consider it. And we still think there's some value to it. But if you don't, because of whatever reason, it may be that you're a bad standardized test taker. It may be that incidentally, if you're an underrepresented minority, you naturally score lower on standardized tests because of socioeconomic reasons. Or it may be because you don't have the money to hire a $500 an hour tutor, or you don't have the time to take three months off of work to do nothing except study for the GMAT. I think that putting the standardized test in uh, a more optional role, meaning an applicant can submit it if that applicant thinks it's helpful to them uh, and helpful to the admission staff to make its holistic decision on whether a person should be admitted. But I think making it optional and giving admissions the opportunity to put more weight on other things, like a GPA that you earn over four or five years in a transcript that might show quantitative work that would give assurances that you're going to be able to complete the rather minimal quant stuff in a core curriculum. Or, hey, if you have an engineering background and you just you graduated with an engineering undergrad. Is there any doubt that you can't handle the quant work at an MBA program? Do you really need a GMAT or a GRE if you have an engineering degree from MIT, Carnegie Mellon, Georgia Tech, or any other prestigious engineering school in the world? I don't think so. And so I think it's very helpful for schools to be more open in helping people who can't take a GMAT or a GRE for whatever reason or can't perform well on the test because it does increase the school's likelihood of 
increase in diversity and inclusion in its program. And that's the helpful thing. And you're seeing a lot of schools do this. And, you know, Sujin had a great experience with this last year and extended it into this year. And we'll see if it keeps moving forward that way. I tend to think that that's one change that is going to be more permanent. Obviously, it started with the pandemic. And, you know, one point last year, Two-thirds of the top 100 business schools in America had either test-optional admission policies or were generously offering waivers on the test. So I think that's a positive development for diversity. And for people who don't have the advantages that I mentioned earlier that allow them to score very highly on these tests. I know that I, for one, (laughs) would be eternally grateful for no more tests considering I took six. (laughs) <laughs> my process to try to get to the MBA. I know I'm a bit more of an anomaly, but to what you're speaking to, not coming from a quant-based background, spending lots of money on tutors, spending lots of money on study materials, and then the tests over and over again. So grateful I made it, but man, for future applicants, let's waive it if we can, if, if it makes sense. I would appreciate that. So Jen, is there a change you'd like to see in the ecosystem? Yeah, we talked about this already. Rankings, you love them, you hate them. There is no other degree that has so many rankings. And if you were on the receiving end of the data request for these rankings, I mean, they are asking for, you know, a hundred different data points and responses. And so to do this for six or seven different rankings publications, and then at the end of the day, when applicants just look at that one number, and don't realize that there were so many data points that went into it of different weights across the rankings, I think it creates confusion in the marketplace because it's like a stamp of this program's great and this one's a little less great as opposed to this ranking carried about XYZ, this ranking carried about ABC. And so I think rather than being helpful to applicants, it makes them a little lazier in doing their research. A lot of them may just look at that number and say, hey, it's this publication. And so it must be, you know, the, the thing I should follow. But if the rankings were to measure things that I mentioned that students will care about, what is the experience like? What does diversity look like? What does the support look like? What does the alumni community look like? All of those things that go into the entire MBA experience, then it might be okay. But each ranking measures what they care about, not what you as the individual cares about. So I think until or unless candidates spend the time diving into what's in each ranking, it's confusing. It's also hard to measure a lot of things. Uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of things about a great MBA education that are intangible mm-hmm. that you can't put a number on. This is where rankings really deceive. And then, you know, when there are mindless journalists who try to put numbers on things, they often backfire. I'll give you a good example. And this has to do with diversity, incidentally. Uh, Business Week in its last ranking decided they were going to measure a school's diversity and weight it in their ranking index. Well, it, it turns out that, you know, one of the most highly rated schools on diversity is Howard University. Now, why is that? It's because basically 100% of the students there are Black Americans. Now, that's great, but the fact is that that's not diversity. So here you have, you know, an effort that was intended to measure what is a really diverse class of students awarding a historically black college like Howard University for not having Jews, whites, international candidates on the basis of diversity. Well, you see these things backfire very quickly when you try to put numbers 
on things that you can't measure properly. And numbers in the case of diversity only tell one part of the story. You can have a lot of numbers of different kinds of backgrounds, but if the community doesn't feel inclusive, if it doesn't have it built into their classes, into their clubs, into the student experience, then the numbers are meaningless. You know, that's such an incredible point. And Sujin, you wrote a post on LinkedIn in the last year or so about being an Asian American woman leader in the business space, in the MBA space. On your side, what are your thoughts about MBA programs and diversity? Kind of circling back to what we asked John earlier, you know, Ross has an incredible history with organizations like the consortium CGSM, Management Leadership for Tomorrow, Forte, Toygo. I mean, the list is kind of endless, which is a phenomenal thing. But what does it mean for MBA programs to really dive in and face the bad news about diversity potentially in a lot of programs, but also look to the future about building more diversity within their programs? I think it's important to go beyond the numbers, as I said, and you have to look at how it's manifested in the community and in the curriculum. Students don't only care about numbers. They care about what a school is doing to foster that inclusive community. Among the things that we're doing here at Ross, you guys experienced this, an enhanced DEI programming during orientation, new classes on DEI like equity analytics. We created Food, Friends, and Culture, which is an event, quarterly event, that seeks to expand awareness of different backgrounds through student storytellers. Our DEI director just created something new called Community Conversations. It's a series to dialogue around critical issues about DEI. And then we celebrate Diversity Week, and it's very much student-led. And so it is a part of our entire ecosystem. It is not just important to students. It's important to us as the administration. It's important to faculty. And so it's built into who we are and not just we've got X percent of this kind of student and that kind of student. I love that. So to kind of wrap up the conversation, we're running short on time here and we have so many questions. We're going to rapid fire a couple of questions for you both. So starting with Sujin, what are your true feelings about application consultants? Because we know that students love to ask this. (laughs) So what would you say is your recommendation on it? So insofar as consultants can help candidates navigate the application and school selection process, I think they can be very helpful especially to candidates who don't know or work with people who have MBAs. The admissions consultants spend a lot of time getting to know each school and help advise candidates on what might be a realistic option for them and a stretch option and a safety school and understand why. And applying to business school, as we already talked about, is daunting and stressful. And consultants can help applicants manage that process and steer candidates to schools that are good. That said, One of the changes that the pandemic has brought about is that schools have made a lot more content and access to admissions staff more widely available through virtual events. In the pre-pandemic days, in order to talk to an admissions officer, candidates would have to attend an in-person information session, visit campus, or attend one of our periodic webinars that we hosted. Now, candidates can join live weekly office hours and admissions chats with our team They can attend virtual application workshops, connect with students in Ask Me Anything type sessions, listen to Business Beyond Usual, getting the perspective from students about what matters to students. We hosted something like 200 plus virtual events this past year. So candidates who may not have the resources to visit campus or work with an admissions consultant now have access to more information and insights on schools and the admissions process than ever before. 
which is amazing to think about considering when we're all stuck at home, how do things change? And we've seen it with business. There was a big shift there, but also the incredible opportunity that has arrived for international or applicants or people who can't travel as much to interact with the schools. John, what about you on the outside? What are your perspective on application consultants? Well, I think there are a lot of them. They're a part of the ecosystem. I don't think they're going to go away. I think they can be very helpful to uh, some people who can afford to hire them. On the other hand, you know, it is a costly exercise. Not everyone has the money to do it. I do agree with Sujin that the greater transparency, the greater access to admission staff and advice and helps level the playing field to some degree. I always think, look, there are a lot of people who applied from MBA cultures. A good example would be, you know, the analyst positions at the investment banks or the consulting firms. They're surrounded by other MBAs. They can get help naturally. They're in essentially MBA cultures. And then there's probably, you know, a lot of people uh, like Eric from the nonprofit space, or maybe you from the tech space or healthcare or consumer packaged goods or other places in the economy, the vast majority of places, I might say, that are not uh, mainstream MBA cultures where you're more or less on your own. And this is where, if you can afford it, a consultant can be very helpful. The other thing is, you know, most consultants do price on the basis of how much help you need or want. And so if you only need help with someone brainstorming an essay topic or helping you read an essay and giving you some pointers or doing a mock interview, you can pay piecemeal and get the help you need for that particular service. And then there's, you know, there are lots of different models out there. You can get advice from recently graduated MBA students for a fraction of the cost. You can go to something like Applicant Lab, which is basically an interactive platform of video lectures and do it yourself for 350 bucks with help. So there are a lot of options out there. And I think generally, you know, admission consultants do play a good and important role. Definitely. Being mindful of time, we would love as we close this episode to hear a final statement. Any closing advice, anything upcoming you'd like to share out or, you know, mentioning any trends or industry shifts you want to highlight for our listeners. It's been such a pleasure to have you both. So I think we'll start with Sujin. What would be your last piece of advice or closing statement to our listeners today? So on the advice front, I'd say if you're contemplating an MBA, you should do it. If you want to become a leader in your field, whether it's in business or out, you should do it. An MBA is the most career expanding graduate degree out there. It's valuable as a standalone degree or as a complement to another degree, from engineering to sustainability to medicine, public health, and so many more. It opens up career options, teaches you how to conduct a job search, which you're going to be doing many times throughout your life, gives you access to a network of really smart people who are going to be working in a wide range of industries, organizations, and geographies. And last but not least, our alums look back at their time at Ross as two of the best years of their lives. For all these reasons and more, I think anyone who wants to be a leader in their field can benefit from getting an MBA. Well, I can't help but reinforce what Sujin just said. You know, I'm a big believer in higher education. I believe the most generous gift you can give yourself is the gift of a friend. The second most generous gift is the gift of higher education. It makes a difference in your life in many ways. And it's not just about getting a job that makes you earn more money. It's about developing friendships. It's about cultivating a curiosity about the world that makes your life livable on a multiple dimension. And that is so much more important. 
And yes, the MBA is a no-brainer investment. You can look at the price tags on the degrees and you can say, oh my God, how could a school charge that much money for this degree? But the truth is you also need to look at the long-term benefits of the degree. The biggest question facing the industry is a question that's asked every year by many, many people. Is the MBA worth it? And the answer is yes, 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 absolutely. It's a no-brainer investment, particularly at a really good school and a full-time program where you will reap the benefits of not only learning the basics about business and practicing business, but meeting people who you want to have at your dining room table every night because they're exciting, they're ambitious, they share your values, and they're really fascinating, interesting people who want to do meaningful things with their lives. That's a beautiful thing. And I will tell you, you get into a program like WASP or any really good program, man for man, women for women, I'm just going to tell you right now, you will probably not meet people of that kind of quality in the rest of your life. I'm serious. The people who get into these great MBA programs are eclectic, they're bright, they're ambitious, they want to change the world for the better. These are people you want to be with. These are people you want to have friendships with. So go for it. Don't get hung up on the cost. There's a lot of scholarship money out there. Uh, you'll get your signing bonus from Accenture or McKinsey or Bain or Goldman or Morgan or Apple or Microsoft or Google or Amazon, and you'll help pay down the debt quickly enough. The doors it will open, the opportunities it will unleash will be unprecedented. I could not agree more as someone who is graduating with debt that feels a little heavy. I honestly would not take back these last two years and maybe like three or four years if we include the application process itself. I would never take it back. I would never change anything. And I really don't think there's anything else that we can say that would top all of the wisdom and insight that you shared. Well, one more thing I forgot to mention, and I always like to mention this because I think it's important. You know, there are a lot of people out there who might be thinking about, okay, do I get an MBA or do I get a master's in public administration or do I go for some other graduate degree? And let me tell you, to me, what the dirty little secret of the success of business schools, it's about professional development. There is no other school, no other college, no other department at any university campus that devotes as much time and resources to developing you as a true professional. And that means making you the best that you can be. It's not teaching you architecture or archaeology or geography or political science. It's teaching you business, but also how to be a business person and how to be an effective one. And then it's making sure that its job is not complete until you land the job you want. There's no other school, college, or department that actually is so invested in making sure that you gain employment immediately after graduation than a business school. That is unique. For all of those listening, keep in mind that cold calling pays off in the end. No matter how terrified we are in classes, it's worth it. I promise. <laughs> awesome. Well, again, thank you both for your time. We're so appreciated. You shared so much brilliant insight and we're excited to be able to have this conversation with you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, really. And great to talk to you. And actually, for all of you out there, we're actually on a Zoom session so I can see Christina, Sujin, and Eric. So it's, it's kind of really nice. <laughs> Agreed. Well, again, thank you both for such an enlightening conversation that's been open, informative, and authentic. Business Beyond Usual is brought to you by the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Today's episode was produced by Christina Weiberg and me, Eric Hoffenbeck. 
Executive producers of BBU are Bob Needham and Christina and I. Thanks to Jonah Brockman, who did our editing today. Thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, go blue, and this is Business Beyond Usual. Usual.